Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob. I'm reading today from a sermon that was once preached by Charles Spurgeon. The title is Following the Risen Christ. The text is Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. The resurrection of our divine Lord from the dead is the cornerstone of Christian doctrine. Perhaps I might more accurately call it the keystone of the arch of Christianity. For if that fact could be disproved, the whole fabric of the gospel would fall to the ground. If Jesus Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. You are yet in your sins. If Christ be not risen, then they which have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, and we ourselves, in missing so glorious a hope as that of resurrection, are of all men the most miserable. Because of the great importance of his resurrection, our Lord was pleased to give many infallible proofs of it by appearing again and again in the midst of his followers. It would be interesting to search out how many times he appeared. I think we have mention of some 16 manifestations. He showed himself openly before his disciples and did eat and drink with them. They touched his hands and his side and heard his voice and knew that it was the same Jesus that was crucified. He was not content with giving evidence to the ears and to the eyes, but even to the sense of touch, he proved the reality of his resurrection. These appearances were very varied. Sometimes he gave an interview to one alone, either to a man as to Cephas or to a woman as to Magdalene. He conversed with two of his followers as they went to Emmaus and with the company of the apostles by the sea. We find him at one moment amongst the eleven when the doors were shut for fear of the Jews, and at another time in the midst of an assembly of more than five hundred brethren, who years after were most of them living witnesses to the fact. They could not all have been deceived. It is not possible that any historical fact could have been placed upon a better basis of credibility than the resurrection of our Lord from the dead. This is put beyond all dispute and question, and of course it is so done because it is essential to the whole Christian system. For the same cause, the resurrection of Christ is commemorated frequently. There is no ordinance in Scripture of any one Lord's Day in the year being set apart to commemorate the rising of Christ from the dead. For this reason, that, that every Lord's Day is the memorial of our Lord's resurrection. Wake up any Lord's Day you please, whether in the depth of winter or in the warmth of summer, and you may sing with the songwriter, Today he rose and left the dead, and Satan's empire fell. Today the saints his triumph spread, and all his wonders tell. To set apart an Easter Sunday for special memory of the resurrection is a human device, for which there is no scriptural command. But to make every Lord's Day an Easter Sunday is due to him who rose early on the first day of the week. 
We gather together on the first rather than upon the seventh day of the week because redemption is even a greater work than creation and more worthy of commemoration and because the rest which followed creation is far outdone by that which ensues upon the completion of redemption. Like the apostles, we meet on the first day of the week and hope that Jesus may stand in our midst and say, Peace be unto you. Our Lord has lifted the Sabbath from the old and rusted hinges whereon the law had placed it long before and set it on the new golden hinges which his love has fashioned. Never let us forget that all who are in him rose from the dead in his rising. Next in importance to the fact of the resurrection is the doctrine of the federal headship of Christ and the unity of all his people with him. It is because we are in Christ that we become partakers of everything that Christ did. We are circumcised with him, dead with him, buried with him, risen with him, because we cannot be separated from him. We are members of his body, and not a bone of him can be broken. Because that union is most intimate, continuous, and indissoluble, therefore all that concerns him concerns us. And as he rose, so all his people have arisen in him. They are risen in two ways. First, representatively, all the elect rose in Christ in the day when he quitted the tomb. He was justified or declared to be clear of all liabilities on account of our sins by being set free from the prison house of the tomb. There was no reason for detaining him in the sepulchre. For he had discharged the debts of his people by dying unto sin once. He was our hostage and our representative. And when he came forth from his bonds, we came forth in him. We have endured the sentence of the law in our substitute. We have lain in its prison and even died under its death warrant. And now we are no longer under its curse. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Next to this representative resurrection comes our spiritual resurrection, which is ours as soon as we are led by faith to believe in Jesus Christ. Then it may be said of us, and you, has he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. The resurrection blessing is to be perfected by and by at the appearing of our Lord and Savior, for then our bodies shall rise again if we fall asleep before his coming. He redeemed our manhood in its entirety, spirit, soul, and body, and he will not be content until the resurrection which has passed upon our spirit shall pass upon our body too. These dry bones shall live. Together with his dead body, they shall rise. Again a song, when he arose ascending high, he showed our feet the way. Up to the Lord our flesh shall fly at the great rising day. Then shall we know in the perfection of our resurrection beauty that we are indeed completely risen in Christ. And as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. This morning, we shall only speak of our fellowship with Christ in his resurrection as to our 
own spiritual resurrection. Do not misunderstand me as if I thought the resurrection to be only spiritual, for a literal rising from the dead is yet to come. But our text speaks of a spiritual resurrection, and I shall therefore endeavor to set it before you. First then, let us consider our spiritual rising with Christ. If ye then be risen with Christ. Though the words look like a supposition, they are not meant to be so. The apostle casts no doubt and raises no question, but merely puts it thus for argument's sake. It might just as well be read, since you then are risen in Christ. The if is used logically, not theologically, by way of argument, not by way of doubt. All who believe in Christ are risen with Christ. Now let's meditate on this truth. For first, we were dead in trespasses and sins. But having believed in Christ, we have been quickened, made alive by the Holy Ghost. And we are dead no longer. There we lay in the tomb, ready to become corrupt. We lay in our death, quite unable to raise ourselves therefrom. Ours were eyes that could not see, and ears that could not hear, a heart that could not love, and a withered hand that could not be stretched out to give the touch of faith. We were as guilty as if we had power, for the loss of moral power is not the loss of moral responsibility. We were, therefore, in a state of spiritual death of the most fearful kind. The Holy Spirit visited us and made us live. We remember the first sensation of life, some of us, how it seemed to tingle in our soul's veins with pain, sharp and bitter, just as drowning persons, when life is coming back to them, suffer great pain. So did we. Conviction was wrought in us, and confession of sin, a dread of judgment to come, and a sense of present condemnation. But these were tokens of life, and that life gradually deepened and opened up until the eye was opened. We could see Christ. The hand ceased to be withered, and we stretched it out and touched his garment's hem. The feet began to move in the way of obedience, and the heart felt the sweet glow of love within. Then the eyes, not content with seeing, fell to weeping, and afterwards, when the tears were wiped away, they flashed and sparkled with delight. Oh, my brethren, believers in Jesus, you are not spiritually dead any longer. On Christ you have believed, and that grand act proves that you are no more dead. You have been quickened by God, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenlies. And now, beloved, you are new creatures, the produce of a second birth, begotten again in Christ Jesus unto newness of life. Christ is your life, such a life as you never knew before, nor could have known apart from him. If ye then be risen with Christ, you walk in newness of life, while the world abideth in death. Let us advance another step. We are risen with Christ, and therefore 
there has been wrought in us a wonderful change. When the dead shall rise, they shall not appear as they now are. The buried seed rises from the ground, but not as a seed, for it puts forth green leaf and bud and stem and gradually develops expanding flower and fruit. And even so, we wear a new form, for we are renewed after the image of him that created us in righteousness and holiness. I ask you to consider the change which the Spirit of God has wrought in the believer. A wonderful change indeed. Before regeneration, our soul was as our body will be when it dies, and we read that it is sown in corruption. There was corruption in our mind, and it was working irresistibly towards every evil and offensive thing. In many, the corruption did not appear upon the surface, but it worked within. In others, it was conspicuous and fearful to look upon. How great the change! For now the power of corruption within us is broken. The new life has overcome it. For it is a living and incorruptible seed which liveth and abideth forever. Corruption is upon the old nature, but it cannot touch the new, which is our true and real self. It is not a great thing to be purged of the filthiness which would have ultimately brought us down. I say, is it not a great thing that would have brought us down to Tophet, where the fire unquenchable burns and the worm undying feeds upon the corrupt? When a body is buried, we are told by the Apostle again that it is sown in weakness. The poor dead frame cannot lay itself down in its last bed. Friendly hands must place it there. Even so, we were utter weakness towards all good. When we were the captives of sin, we could do nothing good. Even as our Lord said, without me you can do nothing. We were incapable of even a good thought apart from him. But when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly, and now we know him and the power of his resurrection. God has given us the spirit of power and of love. Is it not written, as many as receive him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name? This change from the natural to the spiritual is such as only God himself could have wrought, and yet we have experienced it, to God be the glory, so that by virtue of our rising in Christ we have received life and have become the subjects of a wondrous change. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. In consequence of our receiving this life and undergoing this change, the things of the world and sin become a tomb to us. To a dead man, a sepulcher is as good a dwelling as he can want. You may call it his bedchamber, if you will, for he lies within it as unconscious as if he were in slumber. But the moment the dead man lives, he will not endure such a bedchamber. He calls it a dreary vault a loathsome dungeon, an unbearable charnon, and he must leave it at once. So when you and I were natural men and had no spiritual life, the things of this life contented us. But it is far otherwise now. 
A merely outward religion was all that we desired. A dead form suited a dead soul. Judaism pleased those who were under its yoke in the very beginning of the gospel. New moons and holy days and traditional ordinances and fasting and feasting were great things with those who forgot their resurrection with Christ. All those things make pretty furniture for a dead man's chamber, but when the eternal life enters the soul, these outward ordinances are flung off. The living man rends off his grave clothes, tears away his cerements, and demands such garments as are suitable for life. And so the apostle in the chapter before our text tells us to let no man spoil us by the traditions of men and the inventions of a dead ritualism. For these things are not the portion of renewed and spiritual men. So too, all merely carnal objects become as a grave to us, whether they be sinful pleasures or selfish gains. For the dead man, the shroud, the coffin, and the vault are suitable enough. But make the corpse alive again, and he cannot rest in the coffin. He makes desperate struggles to break it up. See how by main force he dashes up the lid, rends off his bandages, and leaps from the bier. And so the man renewed by grace cannot abide sin. It is a coffin to him. He cannot bear evil pleasures. They are as a shroud. He cries for liberty. When resurrection comes, the man uplifts the hillock above his grave and scatters monument and headstone if these are raised above him. Some souls are buried under a mass of self-righteousness, like wealthy men on whom shrines of marble have been heaped. But all these the believer shakes off. He must have them away. He cannot bear these dead works. He cannot live otherwise than by faith. All other life is dead to him. He must get out of his former state. For as a tomb is not a fit place for a living man, so when we are quickened by grace, the things of sin and self and carnal sense become dreary catacombs to us, wherein our soul feels buried, and out of which we must arise. How can we that are raised out of the death of sin live any longer therein? And now, beloved, we are at this time wholly raised from the dead in a spiritual sense. Now, let us think of this, for our Lord did not have his head quickened while his feet remained in the sepulchre. But he rose a perfect and entire man, alive throughout. Even so have we been renewed in every part we have received, though it be but in its infancy, a perfect spiritual life. We are perfect in Christ Jesus. In our inner man, our eyes opened, our ears awakened, our hand is active, our foot is nimble, our every faculty is there, though as yet immature and needing development and having the old dead nature to contend with. Moreover, and best of all, we are so raised that we shall die no more. Oh, tell me no more the dreary tale that a man who has received the divine life may yet lose grace and perish. With our Bibles in our hands, we know better. Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him, and therefore he that hath received Christ's life in him shall never die. Hath he not said, 
He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. This life which he has given us shall be in us a well of water springing up into everlasting life. He has himself said, I give unto my sheep eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any pluck them out of my hand. On the day of our quickening, we bid farewell to spiritual death and to the sepulchre wherein we slept under sin's dominion. Farewell, thou deadly love of sin. We have done with thee. Farewell, dead world, corrupt world. We have done with thee. Christ has raised us. Christ has given us eternal life. We forsake forever the dreary abodes of death and seek the heavenly places. Our Jesus lives. And because he lives, we shall live also, world without end. Thus I have tried to work out the metaphor of resurrection, by which our spiritual renewal is so well set forth. But there's more in part two, which we'll do next time. Thank you so much for being here today. This book is available, Baker Book House. 12 Sermons on the Resurrection. I'm not sure it's still in print. You might find it at Google. 12 Sermons on the Resurrection by Charles H. Spurgeon. It was put out by Baker Bookhouse in 1968. Anyway, this is the Hackberry House of Chosen, and Lord willing, we do get to talk again real soon. Bye-bye.